Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast that will explore ways to preserve harmony and to prevent harmful conflict in valued relationships, and also ways to resolve conflict effectively and to restore harmony if damaging conflict should occur. We will delve into specific tips to manage conflict in life and into much broader topics touching on conflict, actual and potential, good and bad, in the world around us. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Jürgen Strauss of Innova Biz and the Innova Buzz podcast. Hello, Jürgen. Thank you for joining me on the show today. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Jane, it's a pleasure to be with you here on the Crafting Solutions to Conflict show. Thank you. We've had an interesting conversation on your podcast, and I will ask you to tell folks all about that a bit when we are at the end of this episode. But for now, I would ask you to tell the listeners today a bit about your professional path and what has led you to where you are today. Yeah, that's well, I've had a very interesting path when I'm looking back on it and and to tell the story, it kind of sounds like it was all planned out, but of course it was a little haphazard and a lot of things were serendipitous as they happened along the way. But um, I studied chemistry at university and started my career in the photographic industry just about the time when digital photography came onto the scene. And whilst I was working for one of the film companies, ACFA, they at first were kind of running around like crazy, trying to figure out how to respond to the digital (laughs) photography phenomenon and then decided that it was never going to be as good as film and that we were in the business of making better film for people. But um, what I realized very quickly, of course, was two things. First of all, that whilst the early digital photography products were quite poor in quality compared to film at the time, it was proof of concept and it was likely to get better very quickly at the rate at which uh, technology was developing. And also that what we were really in business in was providing people the ability to store memories, to record memories, and that if there was another way to do that that was more convenient which digital certainly was, then uh, it was likely to be a big threat. And I didn't like the way ACFA responding to that. And, of course, we all know what happened to ACFA and Kodak and and the other film manufacturers in, in the subsequent years. So I ended up moving on into the specialty chemical industry where I had a role as, first of all, as a technical manager and technical consultant to all our customers throughout Asia. So I traveled a lot throughout Asia and later on went into marketing, business management, supply chain, a whole lot of different roles that exposed me to new skills and I learned a whole lot of other things. But in all that time, I was traveling all throughout Asia, running teams across multiple locations and in different countries with different languages and different cultural backgrounds. So that was quite a challenge at times, but it was also fascinating to learn about all those different cultures, to make all those different connections, and to travel to all those places and learn about their rich cultural history. So that was quite fascinating. It sounds fabulous. 
anyway, so the I mean, there were a lot of uh, reorganizations in that company over the years I was there. I was there 23 years. And at some point, I started to realize, whilst I'd had probably 22 of those years, I really enjoyed going to work, looked forward to what I was doing, felt that I was making a big contribution and particularly had some fabulous relationships with customers in particular throughout Asia and Australia, New Zealand, and even in in other countries where I'd interacted with customers. But probably at one point, there was one reorganization and I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, there was a bit of a shift or there had been a shift in culture and for a long time. And I just somehow had about a year where I really didn't like going to work anymore. And part of it was the cultural shift. I think a big part of it was the cultural shift that was happening and it just wasn't a fit anymore. Mm. So when when there was another reorganization, I had the opportunity to take a package and leave and I decided to start my own business, which is Inova Biz, which I've been doing now for 12 years. So we help put the human back into marketing by teaching people to niche down to connect with their ideal customers and to realize that they have to help them achieve their goal rather than just to sell stuff, sell product or services, and that the marketing is in actually nurturing them on the full customer journey. So not just once the sales is made, the marketing's over. We take marketing to be in the full customer journey. Which sounds to me like not the perspective everybody has. No. That's right. Uh, I think a fair number feel as long as I've made the sale, that's all I need to think about and others will have to deal with it if uh, we have an unhappy customer. Yes, that's right. So often, I mean, whether it's a uh, in a large company, of course, there's departments. So we have a sales and marketing department and once they make the sale, generally the customer is then handed over to somebody else. And I heard I was speaking to Joey Coleman yesterday on my podcast. He's the author of never lose a customer again. And he likens it to dating and says, imagine um, you're dating somebody and you get to know them and they propose marriage and you get married and then they actually hand you over to somebody else. <laughs> and I thought that, that's a great analogy. <laughs> that is, that, uh, that kind of sticks right in the head, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I've noticed a couple of things, or one thing in particular, and I'll start by asking this. When you decided it was time to leave the firm you'd been with for a long time and a big firm, what prompted you to make a change from not only leaving that firm, but leaving that kind of work to going out on your own? I'd just gotten to the point where I was fed up with all the corporate politics that was going on in there. And I thought, well, you know, this company is not going to be unique in that. If I mm. go to another company, I'll end up, first of all, coming in with a lot of experience, but then starting off at the bottom of, of another learning curve to learn their systems, which are then going to be full of their own politics and so on. So I thought, you know, whilst I love learning, I'm a lifelong learner, a lot of the learning was going to be sort of stuff that is non-contribution to <laughs> yeah. the to productivity. And, and so I thought, well, that's not really good use of my time. And I'd always had this feeling, I guess, in the back of my mind that maybe I could do something myself and maybe I could make a contribution to small business because my interactions were always with fairly large companies 
And one one of the things I learned there was building relationships with individuals within that company was actually the way to move forward. So I thought, well, going into small business, and I'd been watching what was going on. I was always into technology and the internet and computers. So I'd been watching what was going on. And I thought, a lot of this stuff is going to be really helpful to small business. But a lot of people are challenged by the technology. And at the same time, then small business ends up, and I, I noticed this trend over the, over the past 12 years, and I think it's still happening, defaulting to the technology rather than putting the human relationships front and center and using the technology to enable more human interactions. Very interesting. Hmm. It was kind of a combination of those things that I thought I'll start something myself. Take the plunge, big plunge. Yeah, yeah. As you know, and as many of your listeners probably know who are in business for themselves, there's lots of ups and downs, but I've loved every minute of it. It's been probably the biggest learning experience for me of my life. And at the same time, to be in control of your own destiny is is wonderful. Definitely. Well, one reason I was interested in your decision to make the switch that you did is that as I was looking at how you describe the work you do currently, the common thread to me was one of change. You discuss innovation and growth and transformation. Talk to us a bit about how you work with clients to handle change in a way that doesn't frighten them too, too much or cause unnecessary or unwelcome disruption. That's a fascinating point. And I guess I mentioned earlier about my first experience with ACFA and the disruption that came about through the digital photography. And that, to me, formed part of my whole philosophy that you've got to got to be driving change or being aware of what change is being driven by somebody else so that you, you're in a position to adapt where necessary. I've always been fascinated by how can, can we be more innovative? How can we stay ahead of the game? In terms of helping people to deal with that change, there's two things that we do. So the first thing, our whole marketing process is around taking the concept of if you have a product or service, again, coming back to the analogy of photography, it's not the product or service that people actually buy or people actually want. It's the changed feeling that it enables in them. So for photography, it's capturing that memory. So they have an experience without photography. After the experience, it's just a memory in their head. And the change is now they have a physical record of that experience. Right. So it's really the change taking the person from their before state to their after state. So that's the transformation in terms of marketing and focusing on that. So it's not, here's my widget, buy my widget, and my widget does all these wonderful things that widgets do, and it does it better than any other widget. That's not the key message. The key message is, here's the person who wants the widget, for whom the widget is actually the best product. This is their before state. This is their pain or their their need. Mm-hmm. And then here's their after state. Mm-hmm. once they've used that widget. And so in terms of what I talked about earlier, the full customer journey, so it's not just important for them then to buy that widget because until they've used the widget, they don't experience the change. Right. So part of the whole thing is actually guiding them through the use of the product or service and making sure that 
you know, they're in the best position to actually have that transformation. So that's one part of how we help people to understand the idea of transformational marketing because it's about what change they bring about in their client. Interesting. Then we look at, okay, what what are some of the unique ways that we can do that that are either going to get a better result for them in their business and their client or are going to be more efficient, quicker, or they can scale it more effectively so they can get more business and help more people. And that's where we look at, well, what can we do there with technology to enable more of those human interactions? And we help people understand or use the technology, which is often where people that aren't into the technology as much as I am uh, might find a little bit intimidating. And a paradox from what you've described that folks may turn to the technology as a crutch almost, even if they're not particularly good at it or interested in doing it. That's right. I mean, the classical example is the email marketing. I mean, email marketing is really powerful and it's very easy to use one of the services and set up a sequence of emails to go out to a client. But what happens, and I get this all the time, is if there's a nurturing sequence of emails or a sales nurturing that leads up to a sales email and the client buys the product or service, then they need to be sent to a different email sequence. And a lot of people don't understand how that all works because they just have that one sequence. So the client has bought the product and then the next email he gets or she gets is buy my product. It's a wonderful product. I've been on the receiving end of one of those. (laughs) Yeah. Or even worse, and and this is topical because we've just come through the Black Friday, uh, Cyber Monday deal season is you get an offer, uh, um, sign up for X for a 50% discount special offer for this weekend. And I've been subscribing to that product for years and um, I'm paying full price. Right. They're kind of the (laughs) traps that people fall into (laughs) when they run automation without giving some thought as to how to structure it. And also looking at it from the point of view of the experience of the person receiving the emails. Sure. I'm very curious, Jurgen, about how your experiences before you started your business have helped you do well in your business. What would you think the key experiences or skills were that you brought with you from your corporate life into what you're doing now? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> there's there's a lot really. Uh, I guess one of the things that and I mentioned this earlier, is the relationships I'd built up with people across different cultures and Mm -hmm. across the world. I think that's been a big one for me. And also I've always been very service-focused, service-oriented, you know, wanting to serve my customers and always got a huge buzz out of seeing the change in the customers out of something where I've made a contribution to. So I think that's a mindset and and motivation and um, belief system that I've brought into my business. The other thing that, and this was interesting, you mentioned my podcast. When I first started my podcast, it was a mentor of mine, Troy Dean, who said, you know, you should start a podcast. It's a good positioning tool for you. And at that time, I was working with a lot of local businesses just in my own area. And all these relationships I'd built up during my corporate career internationally, whilst I was still in touch with them, there was no kind of reason to do anything professionally with them. And the moment he mentioned that about the podcast, I thought, oh, that is brilliant because 
the first people I'm going to go and talk to are the people internationally that I've got really good relationships with and that I know are doing wonderful things in their business and speak to them and get their insights and share that with my audience. And so immediately I had an international series of guests that I could talk to. And of course, it's easy to do that these days with the internet and the tools that we have. And I also very quickly built up an international audience. So that that was kind of one thing I took out of that as well. And the other one that I probably use a lot is I've always been a very big systems thinker and I've always worked on building systems to do things, big systems in the corporate world like um, a product development system from idea inception right through to commercialization and all the things that need to happen in the meantime. So I've taken that systems thinking into my business and built lots of systems for all the work we do. So we basically have a system for everything we do. And if we don't have a system yet, we make sure that we start documenting what we're doing and refining that system. There will be one. That's very interesting to, to see how you have pulled from your past work to really launch some of your current work in terms of those connections with the international both clients and what else? Also vendors and people you worked with within the firm? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, tell us more, if you will, about your experiences in the corporate world where you were managing these teams that were in different locations, had different cultural expectations and norms, particularly, as you know, my interest is conflict and how they would be willing and able to deal with conflict within the teams or between the teams, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating topic and um, I've got lots of stories there. One of the early teams I led was a technical team that was in four different locations. So we had a laboratory in Japan, we had a laboratory in Shanghai, we had a laboratory in Singapore. Uh, later on, we added one in India to that and we had a laboratory in Australia. So we had Australians and New Zealanders working in Australia. We had Indians in India. We had Singapore, Malaysians, Indians, and Chinese working in Singapore. We had Chinese people working in Shanghai, and we had Japanese people in Tokyo. So a whole lot of different cultures, different languages, different nationalities. And, of course, there was conflict in those days, most of our communication between the laboratories was done by email and email was, first of all, not the best way to communicate subtle things, subtle messages or anything. Secondly, for all but the English-speaking, native English speakers, it was second language, so it was harder for them to actually communicate in written form there was a big risk of misunderstanding what the person meant. So sometimes things wouldn't happen that were asked or required, and then the responses would sometimes cause some conflict that was simply a misunderstanding because of the way it was done. So I was often telling people in Australia that I don't think you should read that that email uh, literally. Um, <laughs> it's somebody expressing themselves in written form in a second language. What we do is we we did have video and teleconferences, so often we'd be on the phone talking to people, but that was quite a challenge with some, particularly in China and Japan, where 
Now, English was their second language, and some of them were not as versed in English conversation either. Um, so that was quite a challenge. The best form, of course, was face-to-face meetings. And I was always blown away when, when we had face-to-face meetings that sometimes there'd, there'd be massive change in, I guess, my perception of other people because of the way that you could then interact with them. And were these people you had already had contact with either by email or by phone and, and then you were seeing them in a different situation? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. often that. But, yeah. I mean, over time I got to know all these people and they got to know one another really well, but there were still situations where these um, conflicts would come up. And then, of course, the Australian, I don't know if you know, Australians are very direct. I've um, heard that. When, when there's a potential conflict there, they would just slug it out, more or less. And um, Indians can be quite direct as well. In fact, Indians can come across as rude, but it's not rude. It's just the way they are. They're very direct and, and that's quite quite normal for them and there's nothing, no bad sort of thing meant. But uh, when you then look at the Chinese or the Japanese where loss of face is is a very big thing and telling particularly your superior or even your colleague no is just not a done thing. So there there was a lot of indirect communication. So, you know, whereas the Australians and the Indians to some extent were very direct communicators, the uh, in Japan and in China, they'd be very indirect communicators and getting people to understand those nuances and interpret the communications was quite a challenge. I could imagine that there's a real danger in someone not being able to say no and the recipient of that information not knowing I'm supposed to guess no out of that. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself having to sort that out in a way to explain to folks Really, we we need to be somewhat direct so that we don't kind of go down the wrong path too far. Yeah, well, what I used to do, particularly in Japan, is I, if I asked them, um, could you attend to this task, they would say yes. But what that yes meant was, we've heard your question. Oh, It didn't mean, yes, I'm going to do it. I had to ask a different question I'd, or, or follow up with a question. I say, well, can you have that? report to me or can you have that task done by such and such a date and the answer would always be yes of course then but then I'd confirm that say okay at the end of our conversation here's the actions we're going to I'm going to do this somebody else will do this and you will do that by that date and then I will remind them afterwards in written form as well and that usually worked pretty well it's just a different way of doing business that's right, yeah. And if there was a no, they'd often come back then on the written thing and there wouldn't be a no, we need an extension on this or we've got an alternative suggestion or something like that. So that would be essentially the no, I don't actually agree. Once we got to that point, that was actually really good because then there was a two-way interaction rather than at the very beginning I was found it very frustrating because nothing would ever happen but they'd never come back and say, well, we don't agree with you or we have a better way of doing it. So once we got to that point where there'd be that two-way communication. And also, you know, from the direct communicator's point of view, I needed to make sure that they tempered their directness so that they 
actually heard the messages coming from the indirect communicators. It sounds fascinating. When you started, did you realize that you would have a role as a communications teacher while you were doing this? <laughs> no, that that just sort of evolved. <laughs> I'd had a bit of experience before that because my background, when, when I worked for ACFA, I was living in Germany. I was mm-hmm. born in Germany. So I had an upbringing that was kind of across two cultures. So I'd had some understanding that there are differences between different nationalities and different cultural backgrounds. But of course, the difference between the German culture and Australian, which is mainly Anglo-Saxon background, is fairly minuscule compared to looking at China or Japan to the West or even India to the West. Yes. This may be not a fair question, but I'll ask, which is whether you noticed over time any change in the understanding of the other cultures or at least awareness of them, not based on your personal experience with the people you worked with, but just the fact that the world was changing and communications were becoming more common across cultures as people did more on the web and they did more with email and they did more with remote communications of one kind or another. I did notice some changes. Um, It wasn't kind of massive change. It was just incremental things, as you mentioned, with the internet coming on board and people more willing to learn more about other cultures and so on. What what I did notice is only a small number of people, but there were a number of people who, for example, a Japanese chap who ended up in charge of that laboratory who'd been educated in the US and also a Chinese US citizen who grew up in the US, but he's migrated from China as a young child and he was posted back into China. So there are people like that. And also another uh, one of my mentors who was uh, who studied Chinese languages and ended up, and also business, he ended up being uh, the senior director of the whole Chinese operation and spoke fluent Mandarin and so had a different level of conversation, respect, um, interaction with the local folks there. And through some of those people and their interactions with the others who who didn't have this kind of um, insight into both cultures, through their interaction with others, you know, we were able to learn a lot more about some of the nuances and some of the cultural differences that we needed to take into account when we were having communication. So in your work today, do you find that you do some work in Australia, but also with people who are based in other cultures? Yeah, well, I have a team that works out of the Philippines um, in an office in Manila. So my podcast editor and my personal assistant who runs my calendar and everything are based in Manila. And I also have customers in India and um, also the Philippines because I travel there quite a bit. So I have customers in Philippines and Manila and then locally in Australia. Australia is quite a multicultural society. So some of my customers have quite different backgrounds to Mm -hmm. um, the standard Anglo-Saxon. So uh, I do still get exposed to a whole lot of different cultures and, and challenges around communication. Well, I imagine that makes it both interesting and difficult at times, just as you were describing working with the, to my mind, wide range 
of cultures that you were involved with when you were in the corporate world. Fascinating stuff. It is wonderful. And those of us who are based in North America and at times can forget that our countries are not very old. <laughs> no. Jürgen, this has been really fun and interesting for me to hear your perspective on these various things that you've been doing professionally, being in a very corporate setting, and now to be running your own show and helping individuals build their small businesses and really embrace innovation and transformation and growth. All of those things, as I said, that strike me as very much about change, which can be a little frightening for some, but very important <laughs> for all of us. Where would folks reach you to learn more about your work and what you have to offer? So the best place is to have a look at my website, which is InnovaBiz, I-N-N-O-V-A-B-I-Z.com.au. And also, I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn if they reach out to me there. And I'll ask you also to tell folks how they can find your podcast. So the podcast is at Innova Buzz. So that's the name of the podcast, I-N-N-O-V-A-B-U-Z-Z.com. If you look for episode 239, you'll find my conversation with Jane on the Innova <laughs> Buzz podcast. Very good. Been a pleasure to talk with you, Jane. Great. Thank you. Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast that will explore ways to preserve harmony and to prevent harmful conflict in valued relationships, and also ways to resolve conflict effectively and to restore harmony if damaging conflict should occur. We will delve into specific tips to manage conflict in life and into much broader topics touching on conflict, actual and potential good and bad in the world around us. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. <laughs>